Azina Ross will always have a special place in my heart, but she is not my, my favorite story of this entire journey. I would argue, you know, probably pretty cool, uh, bad. Well, uh, badass. Badass. Can yep. we say that? Can we say that? Um, one of the most interesting things about her was the fact that she ran several times before she was elected. 14 times. So, 14. <laughs> yes. Hello, my name is Olivia Beauty. Welcome to Searching for Izena on Womanly Stories of Female Leadership at Edmonton City Hall, brought to you by YWCA Edmonton, Parity Yeg, and several past and present Edmonton City Councillors. 100 years ago on December 12, 1921, Edmonton elected its first female councillor, Izena Ross. Over the past century, only 30 women have followed in her footsteps, including me. This nine-part podcast, generously sponsored by the Edmund Community Foundation, will tell that wildly incomplete chapter of our city's history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You will get to meet the 31 female counselors and learn more about why they ran and how they shaped our city. And there are still barriers that need to be broken, even in 2021. Now let's get started. Our hosts for this political journey are Stacey Brotzel and Kim Ann Wilson. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today and episode eight of Searching for Izena on womanly stories of female leadership in Edmonton City Hall. Yeah, already episode eight. Eight. Our second, second to last, to last. one. Yes, yes. Our last there. one's going to be really exciting. Uh, more details uh, coming up at the end of the podcast, but we're doing it live. Do it live! Mm, in person! Like, like Bill <laughs> O'Reilly said in that infamous clip that has gone viral on him. We're going to do it live! <laughs> and I love this episode too, because there were so many stories that yep. were sort of left on the table yes. that we weren't able to tell over the mm -hmm. last eight episodes. Mm -hmm. A lot has happened. A lot has happened in the centuries. So I'm excited for this episode as we kind of unpack that and kind of dive a little bit deeper into these women who we don't we don't know anything about. Yeah. And, and not all the women won that we're going to be talking about today. Some of them lost. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because mm -hmm. they did leave a mark. Yes. And and they did try and they attempted and we're talking about them. So they must have done something right, right. Exactly. So we want you to know them. We want you to meet them. We want you to see the impact and the changes and the kind of women who kind of shaped, helped to shape Edmonton, whether they won or lost. Yeah. And you know what? I just want to just say, have one little tidbit before we get to our guests. Did you know before 1936, counselors were not paid? Jeez. They just did it out of the goodness of their hearts, Aww. right? So after 1936, they were paid 500 bucks a year. A year. So they didn't do it for the money, <laughs> right? So there's nobody complaining about uh, counselors' salaries until the 70s. And, and then 
then they got a little bit more than 500 bucks. Oh, geez. And joining us, they're actually in the studio with us, Kim Ann. It's different. I it's know, exciting. I love seeing people's faces. We have Akanksha Batnagar. She graduated from poli sci and sociology at the U of A and former past president of the Students' Union there. And of course, we have Lisa Holmes. We've heard her voice before. She's the lead researcher for the Izena Project and former mayor of Mournville. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here with you guys in person. Yeah, instead of Zooms, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, pretty tired of staring at the screen. So Agreed. I like to stare at you now, and that's better. <laughs> Lisa, you've put a lot of work into this, right? When we first started this project, we couldn't find pictures of Izena. We couldn't find any details about some of the female counselors that uh, that served. How much, how much time have you put into this? Well, it... it on a normal year, I probably would not have had a lot of time to put into this. But during COVID, this became mm. my world. This was something that, uh, you know, I was able to do at home in all my free time. So probably a lot, like definitely almost full time job. But that being said, it's also a passion project. Um, every time that we looked up a, a new name or tried to find a new story, just felt so inspired and just had to keep reading, had to keep researching, finding out more about their stories. And not just when they were elected, but, um, you know, women they're really highlighted at times of leadership, but the the rest of their story, like what happened after they left city council or what happened prior to give them the journey to get to city council. All of those things were, were so important to me that this was, it was an absolute pleasure and joy. No, that's amazing. Um, I know this podcast is dedicated to searching for Izena and you've done a lot of research on Izena, but Izena ran one 1921, right? What about the women before Izena? Can you give us a little bit backstory about them or it's a really great question and something that um you know we we did start like stacy said with azina ross because we wanted to know about the the first woman who was elected to city council it was a hundred anniversary we wanted to to really dive into that story but um through this process we asked the question who was the first woman to run for elected office in edmonton and akanksha and i did a lot of research to to find out that story and we were really surprised to see that it was a woman named miss bessie nichols and she was elected in 1912. And there's actually a, a really interesting piece about that is that you wouldn't think about a woman being elected in 1912 because a lot of women received the right to vote in 1916. Oh. So this was prior to like the famous five and all of those conversations and then that act actually being passed. So Bessie Nichols, uh, she started her career like a kingsha as a, as a student, <laughs> which is yeah. exciting. It is pretty cool. I think what's interesting is that because you couldn't even like vote, you couldn't even, um, I guess you theoretically could run. She actually worked at the U of A as a, uh, a paralegal, I would say, right? Someone who worked in the law offices and doing work there. And I just think that's so interesting. Like imagine someone who is, you know, breaking barriers, not only in elected office, but in the field of law. I think that's so interesting. And while she was there, she actually wasn't even eligible to take the law examinations um, for uh, to be a lawyer in Alberta. So she was really versed in legal matters and she was like, I would argue, you know, probably pretty cool, uh, bad. Well, badass. Badass. Can <laughs> yep. we say that? Can we say that? Sure. Yeah. And she was doing those, that kind of work while other lawyers were out there doing it. And, you know, she doesn't even have the quote unquote qualifications. So and I she, and she wasn't thing. allowed to run for office either. And she's like, no, I don't care. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, matter. Why wasn't she allowed to take the exam? I'm going to say gender. It was mm -hmm. 1912. I mean, I don't think that they wanted female lawyers. That's not. Wow. Yeah. yeah women can't be lawyers, you know. Yeah. Apparently. It was that era. 
that's crazy. Yeah, she she started off um, in in Ontario. She got a Bachelor of Arts degree, and then she moved to Edmonton and, and went to the U of A, and that's where she started getting into the more legal space. And and actually, she was mentioned in an article in 1914 when she got married because they always wrote articles about women highlighting their wedding and they normally talked about flowers and the cake and like all of that <laughs> stuff and in her article they actually talked about the fact that she was known as one of the most brilliant women in Edmonton wow. which is just such a, a huge honor for her mm-hmm. and that she knew more about the law than most lawyers did and a huge was, loss yes. to the law community and to city council right because mm-hmm. she 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 couldn't run well, and she couldn't be a lawyer. Right. So she, so the journey that she had for, for being elected um, was actually in 1912, the way that, that, I mean, the province of Alberta was only seven years old. And most of the laws at that point were, were just being written. And the largest, actually, it's an interesting fact that the, the second largest piece of legislation to date even in Alberta is the Municipal Government Act. And so back then they had uh, a version of it, the city charter. And in 1911, they had developed a new version of this where they had specifically put in a clause saying that only men were allowed to run for school trustee. Mm. And so uh, even though Bessie Nichols put her name in and she put her nomination papers in to become a a greater Edmonton school trustee in 1912, it was accepted. No one really knew about this because it was a new law, like something that wasn't really relevant. So when it finally found out and that she was actually not eligible to run, there's a, an article that talked about how these uh, suffragette women in petticoats descended on the legislature and tried to uh, encourage them to make an amendment to the, the city charter to allow women to run for school trustee only. And uh, surprisingly, because I mean, as you would know, Stacey, this is like weird for, for provincial government that they literally pass the amendment the next day. Oh, wow. So it was not something that took forever that they had to take to committees and discuss. Like they they put this forward and it was unanimously passed. Everyone supported it. So she was able to put her name onto the ballot. She was a, a really popular candidate. They had a forum. She got a standing ovation. Everyone was really supportive of her. And it was uh, kind of exciting. She did get elected and she served with Margaret Crang's dad on, oh. on, as a greater Edmonton school trustee. And also like Edmonton had gotten bigger because in 1912 is the year that Edmonton and Strathcona amalgamated. Mm. So it wasn't just Edmonton at that point. It was a much larger region. So she took on that position as school trustee for for a year and a bit. Um, She got sick. Unfortunately, she had quite a few serious illnesses. So she took some time off, but uh, she ended up um, serving her time through. And then she left. She got married, like we talked about. And then she moved to B.C. And eventually her husband ended up uh, being elected mayor of Port Alberni, B.C. So interesting, interesting path for her. It also says that she was the uh, the first woman to hold office between Vancouver and Toronto. So like pretty much all of Canada, almost <laughs> coast to coast. So not only was she like leading in Edmonton, like I think that the standard that she set, like to be so beloved by your community and for rules to be changed overnight because of you, that's pretty exciting. That is awesome. That is, that's definitely a trailblazer. Yeah, and she set the standard because, I mean, we started with Bessie Nichols in 1912. She was followed by Jenny Hill, who ran in 1913. She was endorsed by the Edmonton Local Council of Women and was nominated again by Emily Murphy, so all names we've talked about before. And then she was, uh, they were then followed in 1919 and 1920 by two women, Lillian Howie, who was the daughter of Matthew McCauley, Edmonton's first mayor. She ran in 1919 unsuccessfully. And then Theriza Bishop, who ran in 1920. And the interesting part about Theriza is that her husband had served as a school trustee. And then he was the one, taking this right back to the beginning, he was the one that stood up in the meeting when the Citizens League was looking for adding to their slate of candidates and nominated Zena Ross to be on the slate to run to be the first woman on Edmonton mm-hmm. City Council. So it all, like, it's, it was a small city then, right? There, everyone kind of knew each other. And then all the women were supportive of each other. And, and that was really cool. 
seeing the linkage to, you know, the person of my heart, which is Zena Ross. Mm -hmm. And and let's get there. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Zena Ross uh, for people. You know, we we talked about her in the very first episode. So let's get a refresher course on Zena. And and you may have even found more information on Zena. Let's talk about her and a little bit more about the women who ran with her or against her. Right. Well, Izina Ross, I mean, um, like we talked about last time, she she was the first woman elected. She ran in 1921. Um, some of the things that we've found since have just been a little bit more about her background. Um, the fact that she moved uh, down to the homestead by the village of Clive, Alberta, with her in-laws. They all had land there. And then um, came up to Edmonton. And just interesting, like she, all of her in-laws are buried in the Edmonton Cemetery. Mm. Um, like our listeners probably know, Catherine and Neil and I went and visited Azina Ross's grave and it's still there. So one thing that we're hoping is that they will be able to develop almost like a, a tour of some of the, the interesting monuments or interesting things about Edmonton women in leadership. And, uh, you know, going to honor Azina Ross at her grave is always a, an interesting thing to do and something we could we could definitely have as part of that tour. But yeah, we did, uh, Akanksha, we did talk a lot about the kind of the women who ran with Azina. I know. I think it's interesting that like it's to contextualize it like she lived in Edmonton and I know that's like we all know that because we're talking about it but I what I thought was cool is that their house is on 11827th street in Edmonton Alberta and I'm just like you could drive there today mm-hmm. see where she used to live where she, where she used to grow up and I just think like that really contextualizes the fact mm-hmm. that people were doing things in Edmonton back then and I know it's a silly thing to say but just to be able to see that and so the idea of monuments I think is is so interesting and people are constantly talking about ways to remember these folks and this podcast is one example but how do you actually like you know take their legacy and and keep it going and the thing that you're talking about with you know women supporting other women or you know it's always you have to have somebody behind you that is like cheering you on I think that's the case now I mean even with this upcoming municipal election we have you know a lot of women running for for all the roles and I think that's pretty exciting and what I want to see is people supporting each other Um, obviously at the end of the day, everyone wants to make Edmonton or wherever they're running a better place. So I think that's really cool. And obviously Izina was a big part of that, uh, in creating that sort of joint culture. Cause I don't know, it's crazy to me that she lived in the city. I know (laughs) that we say that, but. I love that more than a year ago, we didn't even know who Izina Ross was. Mm. And now we're kind of looking at her as a trailblazer, as almost like a rock star status for people who are, you know, municipal political junkies. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very true. And, you know, like all of our heroes, there is also some things about Azina that are not great, which is interesting. We haven't really talked about like all heroes, you know, have their their faults and and she definitely does. And I I can't sit here and say that everything about Azina Ross is going to be something that people are going to love because she lived at a time where there was different opinions and and different um, just just honestly, just just different approaches to life. And when she served as a school trustee after she was on municipal council, um, she did some controversial things like she believed that women should be fired as teachers once they got married. She didn't think that a married woman should be working, that married women should be at home with kids raising their families, which is interesting because she didn't really do that. So I was looking at her going like, well, you got to you know, walk the walk there. But I think she, she understood that um, at the time, especially because we were talking about like the 1930s, the 1940s, that the family was important. We were going through a war. And that was something that I think was was really relevant to uh, to her thought pattern. And interesting too, like we we have talked about Azina a lot. Um, I really think it's cool that there were three women on the ballot in 1921. Azina gets all the highlights because she won, but there were two other women at the time, mm-hmm. Alice Taylor and Mary Canton. And even though they were not successful, they both came in, you know, like last and next to last. 
they had really interesting journeys of where they got as well. And we have talked about Alice Taylor a little bit. She was the one that uh, back in, in that time period, the Edmonton Local Council of Women had decided they were only going to really support one candidate. And they chose Zena because she was the president. But um, they all signed the nomination papers for Alice Taylor as a show of solidarity that they did support her, even though the organization couldn't publicly endorse her. But the most interesting um, story I found, actually, in that 1921 group was Mary Canton. Um, she was born in Scotland. She was living in the U.S. She emigrated to the Boston area and uh, she got married. She had three little boys and then uh, her husband died. And in 1912, she just for some reason, again, we don't know. There's gaps in, in the story, but there's facts. She moved to Edmonton from Boston as a single mom with three boys and uh, during that time, again, like the, the late 1919-ish area, um, it was World War I. And so one of the articles noted that she was a mother who gave three sons to the empire because she, of her three boys, they all went to war. Even though they were not even almost old enough to, they all went and one of them passed away and two of them were injured. Mm -hmm. So it was difficult for her, for sure. She got remarried and then she ran for council in 1921. She wasn't successful, but she went on to do, you know, other great things. She had two more children. She was uh, really active in the Catholic, Catholic Women's League, as well as the Highland Dance Company, which is kind of cool. So, yeah, she had an interesting life. And, and she really, um, she, she, she took a big leap of faith, like someone like her that was a single mom. I think it's really cool that she put her name forward. Can we talk a little bit about Alice Taylor? Because I think she's really interesting as well. I mean, it comes full circle to the U of A. Someone that signed Alice Taylor's nomination papers that I find really exciting uh, is Dr. Ferris, who was one of Edmonton's leading physicians. Uh, he was also one of the members of the Senate at the University of Alberta. Uh, so obviously these folks were super involved and in, involved in the school board, the YMCA at the time. Emily Murphy was one of the people that signed Alice Taylor's papers as well. Uh, and if we're going full circle, the same person that nominated Isina Ross um, also uh, nominated or was one of the people that signed the nomination papers for Alice Taylor. But what I think is um, interesting about Alice Taylor is that um, when she was running, she actually on the ballots did not put her husband's name. If I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. she put her own initials. And I know that's a really small thing to, to do, but I mean, we've talked so much about the importance of, um, what that means to like have your own name put forward and she put down her own initials. And so even though the newspapers continued to report her as Mrs. T Taylor, she continued to run as Mrs. A.S. Taylor. And when you're going to the ballots and you're used to seeing, you know, the newspaper name of Mrs. T. Taylor, there's obviously that disconnect, right? And I think that the fact that she continued to push forward and, and do it the way that she wanted, like that speaks a lot. It's a small thing, but I think that speaks a lot to what she was trying to say and the difference that she was trying to make in the world. So I think that that was a really bold move of Alice. Pretty proud of that. I think, and I actually like um, Mrs. A.S. Taylor too. And one thing that I noted that was really cool was the Edmonton Institute noted in the in the article about her that she's an extraordinary woman that still drives her own car <laughs> and does her own gardening in her 83rd year and i thought it was pretty cool that they made mention of that i mean 83 and you know and she won a medal and she won a, a medal for that yeah. so you go girl exactly <laughs> all right let's go on to gwendolyn clark and i'm looking at you lisa because i know that uh she has a bit of a soft spot in your heart Yes, Gwendolyn Clark. Uh, her story really resonated with me on so many different levels. And I, I mean, it, it kind of goes prior to her even being elected. So um, as, a, as a young single woman, she was working in the mayor's office at the time. She met a, a handsome young counselor named Joseph Clark and who ended up 
being elected to council as well as serving as one of Edmonton's mayors. They were married. They had three children. And uh, as things happened, Joseph Clark was um, unelected. He was defeated um, in 1937. And because of that, he he wasn't like he wasn't expecting to be uh, defeated. So he had some things that he left as legacy projects that he wasn't able to complete. And so I'm sure he talked about that at home. I'm sure he vented to his wife and was super mad about how he was, you know, defeated in the election. And he ran again in 1938, 39, and 1940. And none of those times was he was elected again. In 1941, he suddenly passed away. And what I found really interesting was that within a three-month period between when he died and the municipal election that was held in 1941, something must have triggered inside of Gwendolyn Clark. And she decided that she needed to run for municipal council so she could finish some of his legacy projects. And so she put her name forward um, as a candidate and, and won, which is mm. amazing. So she served for, for one term on Emmys City Council. She was not reelected when she ran the second time. And the other part that's interesting about this is that Again, we're talking about a time during World War II. So there was a lot going on. And in 1938, so that was right after her husband was defeated, um, just the, the war was just beginning, like 1939. Her son, her only son, went and he started to do flight school. And then he ended up as a pilot and an instructor for the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, he went missing in 1943, I believe, or 1944. And there was a lot of articles about that. 1944, yeah, like went missing. And unfortunately, he uh, he was killed in, in action in Belgium and he, he was actually buried over there. He His remains remained in Belgium. But it just, you know, her story is so interesting because she, she obviously had a lot of dedication to her family, running after her husband had died in such a short period of time, wanting to move forward so many of his initiatives as well as some of her own, then losing her son. She lived in the same house at the very end of Jasper Avenue, down by 82nd Street, uh, her entire life. She raised her, her daughters there. One ended up at the uh, at the city of Toronto mayor's office, Gwendolyn, Gwendolyn Jr. She lived, she worked there. And then Muriel, her daughter, uh, was a, a beloved teacher in the Edmonton region as well. And there's a scholarship for Gwendolyn Clark's three children at the University of Alberta. So I think, you know, just in general, I, I really appreciate that she was very resilient. She went through a lot especially as a mother, but also as a wife. And one of the things that uh, we've talked a little bit about is what is the legacy of the Searching for Xena project. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are named after different women and, and named after different leaders in the city. And there really isn't anything much that's named after Gwendolyn Clark. But we have a really great stadium that's named after her husband. Mm. So I was kind of hoping we could rededicate it and talk a little bit about her contributions to the city as well as his. And you're actually working on that. Yes. I, I have talked to a lot of people about it because I think it's a super easy thing to do. Just, you know, throw up a plaque and have a little ceremony. And then we have an opportunity to be able to talk about her and talk about everything that she did and her as a woman, as an individual. That would be awesome. I can feel the emotion in you. We're talking about Gwendolyn Clark. She's obviously struck a chord. It, it was, you know, I get emotional because I I read through all of the military records. Mm -hmm. I read through all of the articles that she was quoted. Her son was missing for months. Wow. She didn't know where he was. She didn't know what had happened. And just how difficult that would be. Like her only son. Her only son. Yeah. And he was a couple of years older than my oldest son. So it just, mm. you know, all of these stories about like women who were serving, you know, they're very resilient just going into politics. But her and then also Ethel Brown, who was another woman who served in the 1940s. And she was also a military mom. And she was the the president of the Navy Mothers oh. in Edmonton. And she had started... Um, a lot of the 
I mean, I was surprised. I don't know if you guys were, but that there was a, a big Navy contingent out of Edmonton because we're yeah. landlocked. They would send all of the, the men over to Victoria, which is where they would do their training. And she and her husband worked to establish a home for those guys when they were like staying in Victoria. So they'd have a place to be for, for boys and for men that had uh, enlisted in the Navy. So, yeah, interesting woman, interesting at this time period. And I think every time we're talking about, you know, women in leadership, going through these things publicly, losing your hub, your husband publicly, but then going through this entire situation of losing your son uh, is difficult for Gwendolyn. And, and Ethel really stepped up as well. So they're, they're very cool women. But talking about women and resiliency and that kind of thing, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ethel Wilson mm. and her story? I think hers is more to the modern day kind of. She had a lot on her plate. Yes, she did. And I mean, we we have talked a little bit about her back in episode two. So you can go back and listen to that. But essentially, um, the really cool thing about her was the fact that, again, a single mother of three children working at the Burns Meat Factory, which um, is very cool for me because my grandfather started at Canada Packers. So that was back when, you know, that sort of thing, processing meat and creating all of those different jobs was really a, a big deal in Edmonton. And it was all up in 118th, just north of Northland. So it was quite quite an industry. And she started working there as a seamstress. She would be the one that was repairing all of the uniforms for the meat cutters and uh, got involved in the union and just started becoming more of an activist and going into union leadership. And that turned into her running for city council. So she was um, still in her job as a seamstress. She got elected successfully to city council. So she was serving there. And then she also ran for a provincial seat as an MLA. And she served there as well, all at the same time, which is very crazy. And she's a single mom? She was a single mother of three. Yeah, so single mother, seamstress at Burns Mead, plus Edmonton City Council, plus MLA, all at the same time. She didn't have to resign as a city councillor to serve as an MLA, which hmm. I did not realize was a thing. I thought you had to. At that time, you didn't. So. And we don't know her name. This is this is the first time I'm hearing yeah. about uh, Ethel this Wilson uh, you know, in this podcast. Uh, before that... I did. I, I hadn't heard of Ethel Wilson. She has no no na- parks named after her or or really anything, does she? Not that I know of. And I agree, like that her story is so interesting and and really uh, it's really rich in in both like the idea of her being a union activist, which in itself is very interesting, and then also in the different roles that she played. And um, one thing you know through this podcast, we've made a lot of different connections with the Edmonton Historical Society as well as the Edmonton Public Library. And we were shown that there is a book called Compelled to Act, History of Women's Activism in Western Canada that was written by two women from Edmonton, Sarah Carter and Nancy Langford. And it has an entire chapter on Ethel Wilson. Oh, wow. So it's a really great read. It's available now. I bought a copy of it. And uh, it's something that I think a lot of women might want to go into because it talks a lot about like just Western Canada and activism when it comes to unions as well as political activism. And it, it does highlight her and her story. I love the fact that we can relate to Ethel Wilson a little bit more in terms of, you know, comparing 2021 to what, 1940, whatever it was, to see that there are similarities in terms of what they were dealing with then compared to what we're dealing with now. So really, there's really no excuse to say, OK, you can't put your name forward to run because they've dealt with it. Why can't you? <laughs> That's a really great point. And also interesting, like a weird fact about her, but I found kind of interesting was that she's noted as being a widow in a lot of articles. But she actually wasn't. Her husband had left her and he was mm-hmm. from Sturgeon County and he just went and moved back out there somewhere. So she didn't get remarried again because she couldn't because she was mm-hmm. still married until he died. So I just thought that was a little strange and a little odd that, you know, he had he had essentially deserted her. But all of the articles about her talk about her husband dying. 
So I guess that was more palatable being a candidate. PR. Yeah. Even back then, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I like the idea that like you were talking about that a lot of the things that we used to care about or that people used to care about, we still care about today. Um, Because that uh, is why I think that someone from the 80s, Catherine Chichak, uh, is actually kind of interesting. I don't know if we want to move on to her. Can we do that? Yeah, well, yeah. we were going to go chronologically, but let's let's bring up Catherine. Go ahead. Um, so she's from the 80s. Um, and I think what's interesting about her is that when she ran, uh, she cared about a lot of issues that I think today we constantly talk about. So she wanted to see uh, Edmonton diversify locally. Something she was quoted in the art in her news articles about is that she thought that youth programming was essential and she really wanted to see more youth involved uh, in city politics. She wanted to develop the River Valley so that people could actually like go and genuinely meet there. And she talked a lot about the cost of education, which is so interesting because now we know that provincial governments and federal governments deal mostly with uh, the cost of education for post-secondary. But she was a big advocate that the cost of education was a lot way too high that people wanted to go to school. And apparently, since 25% of the population in Edmonton was under the age of 25 at this time, uh, she really wanted to see people stay in the city. And she really wanted to have youth uh, have an actual voice on candidates. So she was uh, one of the youngest candidates to have run, uh, apparently. And so she went from a teacher to really trying to find ways to get uh, young people involved. And so I don't know. And there's no articles that say that she started a youth council of any sort, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, if she did that. However, uh, she also was a really controversial figure. She had a lot of views, uh, interesting and very conservative views on uh, uh, topics that we uh, probably don't want to talk about today. But as Lisa and I were talking about earlier, if you want to Google her, feel free to do so. But I think it's really interesting that, you know, people can be so passionate about things that you know everyone's talking about such as education or youth programming but also have really socially conservative views on things that you know today I don't think would be very tasteful so it's interesting how stories cover her and what people's legacy is right is it is her legacy the really controversial things that she talked about or is it the other things that she she wants to talk about so I think it's interesting but Lisa I don't know if you have anything else to say about her you said some really nice things about her so I think that's yeah. great because I mean definitely the things that are highlighted in my mind are are the things that are more controversial she yeah. she had a very conservative views um, when it came to abortion and she was a person who put forward as MLA the Adoption Act which I mean you could read about but it was it was it was conservative in its views as well as her her views on the LGBTQ2s plus community were difficult um, to kind of read through and and to understand her point um but the funniest thing for me and I am I am a municipal geek and I'm anticipating there will be a few listening to this. Mm-hmm. The thing that I find so funny is the fact that when you have to run for a municipal office, you're really asked for two things that you have to do and only two, which is odd. You don't like it's you don't have to prove that you know what you're doing. You don't need to have education in politics like nothing. You need to be over the age of 18 and you need to sign an affidavit that you don't owe any tax dollars to the municipality that you're running in. They Even don't to wa- this day yeah, in 2021? Yeah, 100%. They don't want oh. you to owe any money to the municipality when it comes to taxes. And Catherine Chichak did. And so she actually had to go to court because of this whole thing where she was going to get kicked off council and then she sued the city and she ended up staying. But it was a very controversial thing at the time. And for me, it's kind of funny because, I mean, there's not a lot of there's not a high bar to getting putting your name on the ballot when it comes to municipal politics. And unfortunately, she was the first one that I found that that didn't actually meet that bar, but still got through and fought it. Yeah, she fought it. 
which is interesting. She was feisty. I mean, that's a good word to describe Catherine. Agreed. Feisty. Feisty. She yes. could have on her posters, I will fight for you. Mm-hmm. Just like I'm I a fighter. Myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right, let's go back in uh, time a little bit because we did skip ahead and to another controversial figure. Um, and, and, and to me, Julia Kaninsky kind of reminds me a little bit of Rob Ford. It's a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. So in, in terms of her connection to the community, um, talk a little bit about Julia Kaninsky. Definitely. I mean, I think that the connection that you're seeing there is her uh, her her personal connection to her constituents was above and beyond maybe what we see today, where she was available just to them at any point. She had published her personal phone number. She had her, her everyone knew where she lived. People would just show up at all hours at her house and, and bring forward issues to her. Um, she was just, she was a, a, a very like large personality, vibrant woman and uh, definitely filled up any space that she was in just with her opinions, but also with the ability for her to be able to just gather people together and have conversation. Um, one of the most interesting things about her was the fact that she ran several times before she was elected, 14 times. So, 14. Yes. <laughs> tenacious. Yes. Tenacious is a good wow. way to put it. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of women that I talk to, one of the biggest barriers for women, and we've talked about this before, I think on the podcast, that so you have to ask a woman three times in order to get them to actually seriously consider running for council. And, uh, you know, a barrier is the fact that people think that, you know, I'm not going to win. So why put my name forward? Why spend all the time and energy in running and running a campaign that's difficult and door knocking if I'm not going to win? And this is a really good opportunity to highlight that, you know, she she learned every time that she ran something new, something different, kept putting her name forward. And at the end of the day, you know, lucky number 14, which is kind of (laughs) cool that she was trying and trying and finally won. Very interesting. In 1964, McLean's wrote an article about her, and I encourage you to Google it. And and let's just talk about how women are written about, yeah, in 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 magazines. And this is McLean's, right? So uh, I've got it right here. Julia is a big woman. <laughs> her hair is two shades of gray, and she wears horn rimmed glasses. Julia's face in profile is about as subtle as a battering ram. Holy. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. But that's how they, they talked about it. You know, her, her size was, was fair game, wasn't it? It was. And I mean, she, we've even uh, heard a little bit about the fact that like it, they, they talked about her negatively, I think sometimes and like being a big woman, like you said. And I think it was more that just her personality was something new. Like a lot of women that were vocal that spoke their minds. I mean, we're talking about 1963, 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, she was on council with Ethel Wilson which is interesting because we just talked about her and her background and everything that happened. Julia Kaninsky and her were almost polar opposites, but also the same because they were both strong women, strong advocates, you know, great communicators. But Julia did it in a different way than Ethel did, where she was much more connected to the community and much more available and accessible to people. And, you know, I I can think even of some city councilors now, if you kind of go through and talk, Mm -hmm. you know, about personalities and how different they are. I, I, some of them, you know, we, if we had a council full of women, I'm sure they talk about one now being big and just meaning personality rather than size, but it is offensive. I feel bad for Julia. She's no longer alive, but you know, we'll, we'll feel offended for her. Yeah. Well, these are the only written records of her, right? Like these newspapers, there's no social media. There's no quote unquote videos to watch. Like, I think it's unfortunate that you would comment on something like it's just not relevant. Whereas other people, um, I find this quote from 
I think it's just a, an article online, but it basically says that her personality, exactly like you're saying, her personality was boisterous. She had, she was fearless. The spectators used to yell at Julie a lot saying, you tell him, Julie, you tell him. And I think that's just so interesting where one paper, you know, talks about her, her looks as being big. Right. And this person and, and this article is saying like, you know, she was a boisterous person. She was, a, she had a fearless approach. Um, and one of her quotes that I just think is, outrageous she said re-electing the same council is like giving medicine to a dead man oh. she would shout <laughs> jabbing the air with a fistful of notes so she had a big personality you can totally see that in the way that this is written and yeah you're so right like it this is pre-social media too imagine what that would have been like for her and i mean women face this today like mm-hmm. being commented on your appearance as if that actually matters Right. And if it did. But you know what? Reading the article, I want to sit down. I want to sit down at her uh, kitchen table and eat a big bowl of pierogies, which I'm sure she (laughs) cooked up because she was Polish. And she seemed like a great lady. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like fun. She seemed fun. Yeah. Yeah. And she left a legacy. I mean, we we know that her her son ran for council later. Right. And we heard a little bit from her family on the Mother's Day episode. But she definitely left a legacy in the city, and I think that's really important. At the end of the day, that's probably what she wanted, was right. just to be remembered, and yeah. she definitely is. Right. That's awesome. Thank you, ladies, for sharing. So what about, we're going to move, talking about big personalities and legacies and that kind of thing. I want to talk about Olivia Beauty, the lovely, lovely uh, voiceover you're hearing on the podcast. We're going to talk about her. Yes. So Olivia, 1974 was the year that Olivia was first elected. Um, she So she's the 11th woman elected to city council. And it was only a couple of years after they split up from doing general elections where councillors were elected just in mass to um, representing wards. So Edmonton had gone through a, a big change at the time. And I think it was kind of exciting to see um, not just the city change, but what what type of counselors that they were looking for and that type of thing happened as well. And uh, Olivia definitely, again, big personality, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think some of the, th- especially even now, like we hear her voice on the on the podcast okay, every yeah. time and she just, she's so interesting mm-hmm. and, and funny. And um, I, I can't wait till we can have our in-person session in September where some of the artifacts that she saved from her days running and her campaigns are going to be on display and hopefully at a, a later date in some sort of roving museum display. But they're like bright pink, like yep. hot pink signs. I and it. I was just like, and that's just so too. great. Yes, like it. little berets and just, you know, just a different time for sure. But uh, yeah, she's a really, a really interesting and dynamic woman for sure. Yeah. I wonder if she like, you know, was the, the start, the person that like set the standard for marketing. I don't know what posters were like back then. I haven't seen like a lot of older posters, but imagine doing a hot pink post like that is a brand, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I love that. And she also ran during a very, I wouldn't say a similar time, but a similar economic time where there was a recession going on and she had written these letters uh, out to their ward. And she was saying, you know, Edmonton's in a recession. And if we want to see continued economic growth, like you have to reelect us, you have to put it, you have to put me back there. And I just think I can imagine I'm seeing it in black and white. And now all I can do is imagine it in hot pink, <laughs> this exact poster. So I love that. Well, she definitely, she had opinions too, which is great. And um, some of them were relevant to municipal issues. And like so many municipal elected officials, um, they have opinions on things that are not in the purview of municipal governments. But, you know, she was very vocal about those as well. Capital punishment was one of them. Um, The church property allotment I thought was interesting, like having the ability for churches to have almost like schools um, and how land is allotted in school reserves, having similar things for churches. Thank you for listening to Searching for Izina. 
This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous financial support of the Edmonton Community Foundation. We also want to thank the Edmonton Public Library, the City of Edmonton Archives, the Adams Agency, and Ryan Jesperson for the generous use of his Real Talk recording studio. Check out searchingforizina.com for a full list of this project sponsors, partners, and committee members. Searching for Izena has been largely powered by volunteers from across the capital region. From research to social media to marketing, volunteers of all ages, backgrounds, and political leanings are helping bring Searching for Izena to life during a pandemic and countless Zoom calls. Thanks to the former and current Edmonton City Councillors who have helped us tell their important stories. Now, back to searching for Izena. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about June Kavanaugh. So the interesting part about June Kavanaugh is her husband was also on council. In 1975, William Horlack died in office and council had to choose between Terry Kavanaugh and Lawrence DeCore of who was going to serve out his term. And so they actually chose by a vote that it was Terry Kavanaugh. So he became mayor of Edmonton for a short period of time, like an interim position. And then when he ran again for that mayoral position in 1977, he was defeated. Hmm. He came in third after um, after Mayor Purves and Decor, I think, were the two that ran. Anyways, I mean, it, it was interesting because he got upset. And so he took a break. And during that time that he took a break and he went on to other jobs, his wife ran for council. And so in 1983, she uh, she was on council at the, at, from 1981, to, I believe, to 1983. And then in 1983, he must have been like, oh, I, I miss my job of being elected and mm-hmm. you've been having all the fun being elected. So we're both going to run. So they ran in different wards. And at the time, uh, I think Terry Kavanaugh came in first in his ward and June Kavanaugh did not um, get reelected in her ward. She came in third. So uh, she only served one term, but um, an interesting background. She started as a, as a staffer in a counselor's office as well. So she was definitely involved in municipal politics and, and uh, went on to, to be active in the community and a lot of community organizations. So, But that's pretty cool. A husband and wife duo running for council at the exact same time. Mm, I think the only one that we have found to date that had. Wow. I know there was a husband and wife that ran for a school board position a couple of years ago, but the only one that I had found. It's funny because now we're getting into people and names of people I've met. And I and I actually met Terry and, and June and both firecrackers. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the interesting part. I, I found that, too, when I was reading through these and especially some of them that may um, like I know one of the ones that I, I really found interesting was Judy Bethel. Um, and there was a, an entire article that talked about um, what life was like for her as a counselor and some of the things that happened. And again, I'm looking, thinking I lived in Edmonton then, like this is during my lifetime, which is kind of crazy. Um, Judy Bethel, I mean, we we know her because she was elected to Edmonton City Council in the 80s. And then she also then went on to be elected as an MP. And she was one of the only ones, if not the only one that um, that had that jump from uh, municipal politics up to federal. But the interesting thing um, that I found on her was in 1991, there was a male council colleague that uh, she had on council that decided that um, people were talking too much in the council meeting during debate. And so he held up a stopwatch and he recorded the time that every single one of his colleagues had talked or asked questions during a debate and then tried to publicly shame the ones that he felt were wasting time. And at the time, Judy Bethel had come in first. She had asked the most questions and talked the most about uh, about the issue. And so he had put out saying that uh, she spent too much time listening to herself talk 
which I thought was just, you know, normal, I think, as some people say about, you know, opinionated women that they they talk too much. Um, but she was defended by Brian Mason. He talked about how, you know, it was an attempt to intimidate counselors from to not asking questions. And then she she spoke up about it herself. And she just reminded this counselor, Alderman White, that uh, the public expects them to go through issues with a fine tooth comb. And it's important for her to do her job well. And that's what she did. So she was a definitely interesting and, and again, dynamic woman for sure. I wonder when the last time was where someone held up a stopwatch for all the men in council and talked timing how how long it took for them. So all of these little stories, just reminders of what women have to face and still probably have to face too. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sheila McKay, she was uh, in the 80s too, wasn't she? She was. And uh, Sheila is really interesting. I know, Kingsha, you thought that that was kind of cool. Not as many times as Julia Kaninsky, but she ran a few times before she was elected. She ran five times, apparently, before she was elected and then ran four times and was defeated in 1995. She also was a registered nurse. And in her first few months in office, she had to help a mayor at the 1989 Alberta Urban Municipalities Association Convention um, because someone suffered a heart attack during a session. And I think you must have heard about this story, but obviously from years later. I did. There was a medical issue that happened uh, at a convention uh, a few years when I was serving at AUMA. And I remember um, this is not a happy ending to the story with Sheila McKay. Unfortunately, it was the mayor of Athabasca at the time he had a heart attack at the count- uh, during the session, like at the general session on the floor. And uh, unfortunately, she passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she worked really hard to keep him alive. And it was just I remember hearing the story about how she did a really good job. Uh, now we're getting into uh, counselors um, who were alive when I was on the beat, uh, the television beat. So it's kind of funny when we're, we're looking back at, and remembering all of these stories. I remember Rose Rosenberger, uh, she represented the North Side and I won a, a TV award and she sent me a handwritten note congratulating me possibly trying to get me on side <laughs> at the next story <laughs> because you've got quite the story about Rose Rosenberger. Yeah, I think that's so cool that you have some handwritten notes because now we're coming to like, I guess, closer to the future. But what I think is interesting about Rose Rosenberger and something that is something that I'm sure people can relate to today is that she experienced a form of cancel culture, quote unquote, over her comments um, when people were discussing things like policies of naming things after people. So that's a really topical conversation right now where people were talking about naming arenas after people or naming parks or schools or putting up monuments. And she was talking a lot about naming things about certain people, but she was worried that it was too much of a celebrity thing. We were celebritizing politicians. And I just think that's a really interesting thing because people were were not willing to hear her. They're not willing to listen to her. But uh, as I learned from Lisa, she had a lot of stories, but none of them were published. Well, she had a lot of stories that were uh, reported about her and some of right. her comments, but not all of them are suited for us to publicize. Um, right. Just because, <laughs> I mean, like many politicians, um, when you're sitting there and you're having a conversation, sometimes you're you're thinking before you're actually talking through the words. Yeah. And um, especially if you're passionate, which I think she was. I mean, that was very clear in all of her, the different discussions that she had, as well as the debates at council. It really came across this, this level of passion that maybe had not been seen um, before in a long time. And sometimes she would say things that would be interpreted in a different way by others or that were just just not like 
I guess, not right. <laughs> like things where she had talked in this situation, talking about celebrities and naming things after them. She had linked uh, Pierre Elliott, Elliott Trudeau to Paul Bernardo. And I mean, it's just odd. Ooh. It's an odd mix. Yeah. Like it's like, to hear that in a council meeting, you'd be like, oh, this doesn't really make sense. But unfortunately, then it wasn't immediate. Like it's not like social media where someone was tweeting that out like, oh, guess what Rose said? It was front page of the paper the next mm-hmm. day. So because the the stretch of media and and the stories was kind of longer because of the gaps, um, that's where I think that, that some things that may be small may be picked up and, and carried on for a much longer time. And in her case, I think that's what happened a lot. So she was known for that, for just being, you know, very opinionated and sometimes getting her foot in her mouth a little bit too much. But that's also something that a lot of politicians do. So And so she was canceled. In some ways, yes. Like she she definitely, I think cancel culture in this circumstance kind of means that she said things and people may not have taken the opportunity to fully talk to her about why they had just judged her words. And in that situation had judged it and, and assumed that she was a certain way or a certain type or had certain opinions that maybe she didn't. Yeah, that impacted the rest of her term, though, because people were not willing to listen to a lot of what was going on anymore because they had made a lot of assumptions about uh, her decision. So it talks about that legacy piece again. Like, what is your legacy? Unfortunately, when Rose got quote unquote canceled, that was kind of that was it. I mean, I don't think that there's a lot more that someone can do when you're already like, you know, a woman in politics and now you're having to be on city council, but you've been canceled for your own uh, words. And I don't I think it's pretty hard to be taken seriously after that. So she was reelected, though. Oh, she was. Yeah. She was. Yeah. She was elected in 1995 and then she was reelected in 1998. Mm-hmm. So she served two two terms. Um, for Ward 2 up in the north side. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Wendy Kinsella. So Wendy Kinsella, she, um, again, like she she ran for the first time. And the interesting part that I found about her um, when she ran for the first time was that she beat out a three-term incumbent. And that in itself is a big deal. Wow. Like a, a gentleman that had been serving on council a long time, had an established presence. And it was really, um, according to the news articles, it came down to her ground game. Like she door knocked the entire mm area that she was looking to represent. And I think in that, that's sort of, um, especially now when we're talking about going into a municipal election and during a, a period of COVID where, you know, maybe people are not thinking that door knocking is really that relevant. This was a really good example to show that it is like getting out there and meeting the community and really selling yourself and talking about like what your vision of the community is um, can matter. And it can be something that can make you successful over a three-term incumbent like it did for Wendy. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, I also thought it was interesting that she was very, she was very public about the fact that she had seen herself in the mayor's chair, that she was looking for um, sort of a long-term career in politics. And unfortunately, in 2003, she had some health concerns that would stop her from being able to perform the mayoral job. So when she was asked if she was going to be running, she had said she was thinking about it. But then when it actually came down to nominations, she didn't put her name for it for mayor, even though that was her dream. So I felt bad that her time in politics was cut short. Due to illness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, due to illness. I mean, according to the news articles, again, it had said that uh, it was something to do with um, the length of time that she would have to be sitting. And I mean, as a politician, I can tell you that you sit a lot. Like I I ended up with a lot of health issues after just from the amount of time in like folding chairs in hotel conference rooms and things like that, where you're sitting all the time. And sitting is the new smoking. Like it's, it's got a lot of health issues if, if you sit all the time. So that seems to be what happened here, unfortunately. But interesting woman. And again, like a lot of, uh, this was like the 1990s, a lot of different changes were happening in Edmonton and a lot of really big issues that were coming forward. And 
Wendy was a part of a, a, a movement of change. And so I think she should be really, really proud of the legacy that she left. Mm-hmm. Talking about movement of change. <laughs> how about Sherry McKibben? Because she she broke a lot of barriers, didn't she? She did. Yes. Uh, she so she's the first uh, LGBTQ2S plus woman elected which is super exciting. And she was uh, public about it. I mean, we can't also, we know now that we can't say that she was the only, or maybe that she was the the first, cause we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was the first to be public about that. And, uh, you know, I think she, she probably had a lot of barriers that she had to face, but she broke that ceiling, which is exciting. Yeah. She also ran as an NDP candidate in March 9, 1997, which is important because that was when I was born. So I'm finally <laughs> coming into this picture. Uh, but she had lost in Edmonton, Norwood to Sue Olson back in the day. That can't have been easy for her. Yes, I can imagine. I mean, it, we had also obviously a beloved um, counselor, Michael Fair, was also, uh, you know, during this time period. And I think um, probably paved the way a little bit for some of those conversations. But there was a lot going on. I mean, the 1980s was uh, when we saw the Pisces raid happen. It's back when they had the morality squad at EPS. Like there, there was so many things that were going on in the city. And to uh, stand up and be a vocal advocate is one thing. To put yourself forward to be a community leader in a, in a situation where you'd have a voice, but also the ability to Im- impact change. That takes a level of bravery. And yeah. I know um, we, we found a quote where she talked about why she ran essentially and and she one of her inspirations was Gloria Steinem which I thought was super cool um she quoted that uh Gloria Steinem said the world should be governed by postmenopausal women <laughs> which is just so relevant um and true oh my gosh. she sounds really really cool and I, just, I, I think pre-menopausal uh, women are pretty effective leaders as well <laughs> that's just I'm just gonna put that on the table oh yes I <laughs> um, also say like it's the intersection of being you know from that community but also being a woman like you have two things against you at this point and I think to be able to to navigate both and to navigate both the way that she navigated it is just so inspirational because she stood her ground she knew what she wanted and she really was like especially in the stories you read values driven she had a lot of values and you have to be really uh, you have to know who you are I think when you're running and you are a woman and especially when you came from the LGBTQ community at that time it wasn't like what it is today. I mean, the world wasn't as accepting and I would argue the world continues to, to be what it is. But I just think the legacy that she left and the resiliency that she had, I don't know. It's to be commended. It's to be commended for sure. Values based politicians are rare. Like I really, I I think that, and I think that um, the idea of, of municipal politics being nonpartisan allows people to really live and govern by their values. And um, right now we have a whole commentary on sort of the, the provincial relationship with municipal governments and um, politicians at the municipal level are, are, are get in trouble if they're too vocal against the provincial government. And, and we've seen that quite a bit, especially during COVID. Um, one thing I thought was really, really relevant to this with uh, Sherry McKibben is that she was very vocally critical of Ralph Klein. And uh, even to the point where she she said it's exceedingly critical that we stand up for the principles we believe in and not be afraid because we might be belittled by a premier who neither cares nor listens. Let's unpack that a little bit. Why shouldn't municipal politicians be hammering at the government, well, provincial government and federal government? Who are we kidding? Right. It, it, mm-hmm. It's it, it's something that you have to tread really lightly on because you have to work with these people. You do. I mean, that that that's part of it is is that it, it's always a, a balancing act, essentially, because municipal governments are a child of the provincial government. They don't have status when it comes to being an independent level of government in the Constitution. 
So no matter what, you always have to go with your hands out to the provincial government and say, can you give me this? Can you give me that? Can I have a share of your resource revenues? Please put in a PST so that we can have a percentage point off that. That would be great. Like things like that, you know, relevant <laughs> and maybe a little bit. Um, in this situation, I think, and in, in, in all situations, um, people view municipal politicians through a lens of ideology. So they might have looked at Sherry McKibben and said, okay, well, she's an NDP. Like you said, she ran for the, the New Democrats, you know, years yeah. later. They look at that and think that perhaps she's been critical because of her personal views and not because of the issues as a, a voice of her municipality. And that's that's a difficult situation to be in. And I know I know I felt that way. I mean, literally, I think I went to every single provincial party convention when I was elected because you have to go to the mall so that you're not really showing favor to anybody because it's you have to just play the game. It's politics. And unfortunately, I think some people get uh, get pushed down for that. But I, I love it when municipal politicians stand up for their communities, whether it's to the provincial premier, to the government, to anybody. Like if you get bullied, you you need to fight back when you're a municipal mayor and you're you're really representing an entire city of people. Yeah. You're supposed to be nonpartisan, not apolitical. So good point. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. So, Kakanksha, why don't you tell us about Janice Milnichuk? Um, So Janice Milnichuk, the reason I want to talk about her and I think it's so interesting is that she actually was the president of the U of A Students' Union. And so... Uh, as just had, like you. Yes, just like I was in 2019, <laughs> 2020, which feels like a lifetime ago because there was a, a little pandemic in the middle. <laughs> a little um, one. Yeah, just a little. But what I think is so, so cool is when, um, if anyone has been to the UVA uh, offices before, which I encourage everyone to visit if you ever have the chance, something that is really interesting is that the pillars there all have these names written on them. They're written mm. in Sharpie. Some of them are written in old paint. Some of them are wearing off in the sun. So the president's office um, has been held. It's been the same office for years and years and years. And the reason we know that is because uh, there's signatures. So when you leave your term, people will sign the wall. Um, and I distinctly remember this wall being there. And I almost wish I was like going through my photos trying to see if I could find one. And I'm sure I could just go back and take a photo. But uh, Janice's name was on there along with so many other um, people who have gone on to do great things. Uh, our current mayor uh, worked at the Students' Union and he wrote his name on the wall, even though he wasn't supposed to. He did write his name on the wall, but we often let it slide. But I just think it's a really interesting legacy to have people um, to do that. And the reason that it's the pillars and not the walls, it says people remind me of this like every day, is that if the building were to burn down, the pillars would still stand. Oh. Um, and so what I think is so cool, when I went back last year to write my name on the wall, I was debating, do I do it in marker or do I do it in paint? <laughs> so I did it in both. I did it in both. And Janice's is at the point where it's wearing down a little. So Janice, if you're listening, please come in. Please rewrite your name on the wall. We'd love to see it. And if anyone else who's uh, from the SU is listening, is I think it's really interesting that people did that. And the names from the early 90s are, are wearing off now in the early 2000s. So if you remember that you were there, please come back in and resharpen your name on the wall. So you held that position. Was that a good training ground for, for, for council? I mean, perhaps. I think it was a really interesting position to be in. I really enjoyed it. I ran a campaign. Uh, I told myself that I'd be authentically myself and if people didn't like it, then so be it. And my entire campaign was pink. Uh, it was <laughs> so pink that people were like, you must like love the color pink. And I'm like, yeah, it's almost like it's my favorite color. And a lot of people <laughs> constantly told me like, that's just so girly. That's just so, that's just so this. And I'm like, I just love the color. If my favorite color was blue, I would have done the same thing. If it was right. green, I would have done the same thing. So it was really interesting. I mean, having to work with different levels of government, particularly the provincial government uh, was changing. So we went from the NDP to the UCP. And that was really interesting to be able to learn different things from different people. And 
yeah, it was a lot. I mean, it was a training ground perhaps, but it was really interesting having to deal with our council and having to be representative for students at the same time. But an experience that I say was always the best year of my life and wow. potentially the worst year of my life. <laughs> All in one. Do <laughs> so you had said that Janice Melnichuk had come back to visit uh, yes. after she had served um, and when she was on council or at, and she had brought a friend. Yeah. So something that I love about old SU folks is when they go on to do incredible things like this, be city councillors, be MLAs, they often come back and meet with students to hear what we have to say. So it's noted in the minutes that she would come back and visit campus because she wanted to talk with students and probably go and, you know, talk to the people that she probably still remembered. But she always brought a friend with her and she always brought Jane Batty all the time. It's always noted that Janice came to council uh, to students council at the UVA and brought her colleague with her, Jane Batty, who served at the same time as her. So I think that's just so interesting. Uh, perhaps Janice was educating Jane on the, the issues that students felt, but Jane also had a connection to the U of A. Um, I think she was involved in student leadership there as well. What not the students union, but I just think that's a really awesome thing to be able to bring people back to campus. And I think campus is like so central to to Alberta, in my opinion. So. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Jane? Jane well, the one thing I think to, to highlight about Jane Batty is the fact that uh, there's different paths that women that we've seen here um, have taken to get to being elected onto city council. And some of them was through local community organizations. Some of them were community organizers. Some of them went the route of being involved in unions. Um, and some of them were working as staffers in the municipal world, whether it be in a counselor's office or working as a public servant. And uh, Jane was one of the ones that worked in a counselor's office. So she started her career um, getting involved in municipal politics that way, obviously learned a lot and uh, then moved into uh, being elected after she put her name forward. So I just thought that was cool. Her, Gwendolyn Clark, June Kavanaugh, Kim Cruschel, they all started off as uh, staffers in, in counselor's offices in Edmonton. So interesting journeys. So another route. Mm. to get elected, right? There's there's so many. I mean, mine was library board. I started off in, in working for Library uh, Trustees Association upstairs in the Milner Library and then uh, ran for a library board in Warrenville and got to know a lot of people and then ended up running for council. So, so you kind of get a taste of it and, and you want more? You do. I think, I, I mean... It, Yes, I think in my situation, it was that the library board relied on council for funding. And so I went to the council meeting, like asking for money for the budget and got denied. And I was like, oh, I'm going to run for council. <laughs> like, <laughs> you realize where the power is when you live in a small town. But for sure, I mean, in a lot of these situations, I think that um, most likely they saw that there's an avenue for creating meaningful change. And in all of our careers, one of the most important things I think for people is to feel like they are making meaningful effort to change. And municipal government is a great place to do that. So they may have seen that uh, by their their employer, by the counselor they were working for, and then moved into being elected themselves. Almost the confidence of, I can do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I think there's a lot of fear about what a counselor does and maybe a little misinformation or um, curiosity. They just don't, you don't know what's entailed, right? So it's, it's like almost a like a mysterious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's the job description? How many hours, right? So maybe they just sort of saw a little, they peeked behind the curtain or under the curtain and they said, oh, this isn't as scary as I thought it was. Yes, that's most likely the circumstance too. I mean, understanding the job, seeing what it's like, being involved, working beside a counselor day to day. I mean, all of those things. Also, I think that they, they had a, a step up perhaps on some of the other candidates because they would have known 
very clearly what the issues were at the time. They would have been involved in talking to constituents. And so, and, the mo- and they know the movers and shakers too, right? Yes, exactly. Know who to go to to get the money for your campaign, which is always a huge thing. So, yeah, I think in those circumstances, they probably they learned a lot, and you know, all of that uh, that learning and education is probably something helpful. I will say on the flip side, though, what I think is interesting is do you think that women tend to seek those positions as well so that they can gain that experience uh, to be able to run? Because something I knew at the UVA is that a lot of the people that ran, if you were a female uh, person, I was the 10th female president in the 110 year history. And I think that's shocking. It's like disappointing to some extent. But I remember I was like, I have to work at the SU for a year. I have to be a vice president first and then I have to work my way up. A lot of men just run. They have no background experience they don't necessarily do the work they're just like oh I have this idea I want to run I'm going to just go and do it and I'm like I have this idea I'm going to prickly on it for three years before I actually can go and do it because I need to be qualified and so when I'm up in a forum no one can dispute me I can be like I've worked here for four years actually like I do know what I'm saying so I wonder if that plays a role into it as well where you as a staffer get to actually learn so much of the nitty-gritties so when you're potentially at a forum stage you can say that you actually know what you're talking about Right. You're not just saying like, here's how I'm going to do it. You're like, I've actually done it. Here's exactly how it's going to be done. Whereas your male counterparts don't necessarily have to do that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely relevant. And I I honestly wish that there was some sort of either like a crash course or a couple of years that were required of, of some sort of experience working in a counselor's office before you could run. Because one of the things that drives me crazy in elections is hearing candidates say like, oh, we need to talk about education or we need to talk about health care. And it's like, dude, it's not a thing. Like that's yeah. not something that municipal governments actually deal with. So I, just having that knowledge and experience. Yeah, it's a huge, huge leg up. There's no question. And I was just thinking we need to deprogram our girls and, and to just go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think people think that they need a resume that's 45 pages long mm-hmm. before we do it. So women do. Yeah. Women do. Yeah. Yeah. Or even but, me, to be honest, like from from the a lens of, you know, being non-political, being an immigrant here and all that kind of stuff. It's like I thought you had to have this, you know, lengthy tenure of, you know, experience and, and, and knowledge and that kind of thing. But being part of this whole project, I realized that, that that's not the case. So I think a lot of it is down to education as well and being aware that, you know, some of the barriers that you think are in place aren't actually barriers at all. <laughs> and what is that stat that a, a woman has to think that she has to qualify for 90, 80% of, of, of a job before they apply for it? Yeah. And a men and men are like, 30%? Yeah, I think I'm, I think, I think I'm a good fit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yep. And the interesting part is, is that even when you are elected and you've been uh, elected for a few years and you're, you're in politics, there's another level um, when it comes to municipal politics, and that's running for a provincial association, something like the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association or the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And it, it's funny, like even I felt that um, going from being a mayor for years that I wasn't qualified to run for AUMA, hmm. which was interesting because I absolutely was. I had the live experience and life experience and everything. But I think no matter where you are, there's always that little like imposter syndrome that comes and hits you so and you're true. just like, oh, it shouldn't be me. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting. And it, it, you know, it's relevant to this as well, because uh, I think one of the, the last women of the 2000s we haven't talked about is Linda Sloan McCullough. And uh, I just found that really kind of cool that I, I obviously know Linda. She was president of AUMA in 2012. She was the second female counselor from Edmonton that served as president of AUMA. 
So now that we know that there have not been very many of them, mm-hmm. it's kind of neat to think that they've had two presidents of AUMA. So Linda Sloan uh, McCullough and Pat McKenzie, who served in 1984. And they've also had a president of FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So the, the national group, and that was Karen Levovici. So, you know, they've really stepped up and taken roles, uh, not just serving their own community, but tried to be a voice for provincial and federal politics, too, which is great. All right. I love these lost stories of female councillors here in Edmonton. I, I, I wanted to sort of uh, sum things up and let's talk about what you hope comes from this project. Now that we know the backgrounds of all of these women who some of them have done amazing things. What do you think the legacy of is of the women who came before for the women who are coming up? I think that like what I have loved is that every story is so unique. It is so distinctively unique. And that just means that you're also going to have a unique story that you can apply to the situation and their unique experiences were able to shape policy, actually make these differences that we continue to read about, which means that your unique experience is going to also shape that policy. There is not necessarily like a pathway of like, you're going to do step A, step B, step C. It's actually, you're going to do step A and then you're going to do step G and then you're going to do Z and then you're going to come back to A. That's what I think is most interesting that there is no linear path because your extremely unique situation and your extremely unique uh, personality like is, impor- is important, whether you're boisterous, whether you're fun, whether you're more values driven, whether you're pragmatic, like your voice is needed because it is so unique to the situation at hand. And you are the only person that understands how unique that is and how your lived experiences can represent other people's uniqueness. And I think that's just so inspirational. It's a really great point. And I think it ties into, um, so obviously I've researched a lot and um, Azina Ross will always have a special place in my heart, but she is not my my favorite story of this entire journey. And my favorite story comes from a woman who ran for mayor and was not successful. And I also wanted to highlight that because I think that it's interesting that sometimes women don't step up into something because they don't see a pathway to success. But just the idea that there were women out there that put their name forward. We are celebrating 31. There are hundreds out there that have ran for council over the years that have unique stories, like Akanksha said, that have unique journeys and would have offered amazing opportunities and had an amazing voice if they were elected. And so, I mean, it's not just yes, these women were important because they actually were successful and they served. But there's so many women serving across so many different organizations and leadership positions in our city. And what I hope happens is that people are listening to this and thinking, okay, there was some crazy women, you know, back in the day and I'm crazy like them and I've got something to say. Or my wife, my sister, my friend, my roommate, the woman that I knew back at a university who I haven't talked to in five years, but I still connected with on Facebook, Anybody that they know that is female that they think would be someone who would be a great representative for them, like just tell them, just ask them. Like it's heard three times that they have to be asked before they'll consider it. Be that three times, like, or just poke them and 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 say that they you think that they are great, that you want to celebrate the work that they do, and that the the fact that they put themselves into any leadership position is important and valuable. I hope that people do that because I think that uh, there's so many more stories in this circumstance and uh, not just in Edmonton, 
I'm anticipating this will happen in Calgary next year, you know, is a year for them to celebrate as well for a hundred years. But also I think across the, the, the province I did put on Twitter and I got a few uh, municipal politicians from different municipalities that have now gone and researched to see who the first woman in their municipality was that was elected. And so celebrate that, push, put, put it out there and then talk a little bit more about who they were. I think that would be really great. Are you going to tell us the story? I can't end. What's your favorite story okay, in yes. all of this? <laughs> yes. So 1986, back in the day, well, I was six then, um, Cheryl Schumacher ran for mayor. And this is why I just think it's so funny. Um, she actually ran, she put her name forward, and then she withdrew from the race. And uh, the article stated that she said that mayoral candidates, female mayoral candidates, had to be attractive and voluptuous and photograph well. And she wasn't those things she felt, so she withdrew. And I thought at first I wanted to say, like, seriously, I want I, I that resonated with me because I think there are women that believe that that politics and running in campaigns is a popularity contest. It's like a beauty pageant. And none of those things are true. Really, it matters about what your ideas are. It matters about your values. It matters about who you are and whether you're passionate about things and the fact that you want to share that. Like being ideally, that's what it's about. Yes. If you look at social media posts, you look at women who run and it's like, oh, I didn't like her hair or her hair looks great today. (laughs) You don't hear what's coming out of their mouth. Yes. And so, I I mean, I I think it's important that we we consider that politics in itself can be very superficial. And unfortunately, Cheryl felt that way. The reason it's funny is because there was a letter to the editor that was written in response to that. And uh, a person named W. Mount, I don't know if they're male or female. It was really fiery. And they talked that they were happy that the criteria didn't apply to the masculine mayor candidates because all the president (laughs) candidates would have to withdraw from the race. And then they talked about if the mayoral election was a beauty pageant, there should be a talent portion. And you should be looking at like paper shuffling and mudslinging and like all of those crazy talents that would be a bathing suit competition. Yes, exactly. So it just it was really humorous. But uh, I I felt like, you know, I felt bad for Cheryl when I read it. I just felt like. I, I wish I would have known your story. I wish I would have heard what you wanted to be out there because you wanted to run for mayor. And the fact that she withdrew is sad. So that one resonated with me for sure. And I wish you would have been there to be her confidant and say, listen, <laughs> you don't have to be voluptuous and beautiful. Yes, exactly. I definitely would have done that. I would have been like, come on, girl, you can do this. You can, we can do this together. And I hope that other people would have done that too. But unfortunately, she, we would have never known the story of Mayor Schumacher. She would have ran then. And Akanksha, I know your favorite story is also a woman who ran for mayor. It's true. Um, so someone that I find super inspiring and really interesting is she ran in 2001. She's, she was an 18-year-old then. Her name is Tess Ellsworthy. She ran for mayor in Edmonton on a platform of environmental activism, which is extremely politically relevant to today uh, when we're talking about things like the climate crisis. And she also was a member of the LGBT. LGBTQ community and Tess actually uh, had the guts uh, to shame an incumbent mayor at the time for not attending the pride parade um, and being ashamed of his gay constituents. And so um, I just think it's so interesting to not only run on something like I was saying earlier, a lot of these issues continue to come up over and over again and time and time again. And the people are saying the same things that, you know, Edmonton needs to do more when it comes to environmentalism. And this 18 year old just knew it. She like knew what she wanted. She's like, I'm going to tell people exactly what I feel and I'm going to make people listen to me. And people listened to her. People were really interested by what she was saying. She was quoted a lot in the media uh, during that time, which I think is just, you know, an honor in and out of itself. And she might have not won 
right? But what was important is that people will remember her for what she did, which was shifting the conversation so that people did talk about environmentalism, so that people did talk about things like the Pride Parade. And apparently she was one of the only LGBTQ mayoral candidates and maybe the youngest ever, uh, question mark. So if that is true, which, you know, that is just so inspiring out of itself. And I think if you want to make a difference, maybe you do want to run a campaign that is just talking about what you care about because people were talking about environmental activism at the time because she was forcing them to have the conversation. And I just think that's so interesting in 2001 uh, to be able to have that kind of impact and to be able to have that kind of sway over what the public is talking about. And yeah, I think that it's really interesting. And, and honestly, if you're listening, Thanks, because that was it's a lot of work to talk about something like that and get people talking about it, knowing that you're going to lose the campaign because you had a one issue platform because she wanted people to talk about it. And that was it. Her goal was achieved. So, so she lives in Ontario now. And Akinksha and I have like researched to find out where she is and what she's doing. And yeah. we honestly like if you know her, please have her reach out to us on social media because we <laughs> yeah. want to hear how that went. Like 18 she's years old. Masters and it just now. sounds really cool. She so. has a blog that she hasn't posted on since like 2014 <laughs> or something. So yeah, we've, we've really, read your blog. We've looked her up. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, ladies, for joining us and sharing these inspiring stories of these lost stories of so many women that has ran and, 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 and who didn't make it. So it's really inspiring and I'm excited to hear all their stories. So thanks again for joining us. Our next episode is a really big one. It's our ninth and final episode. It'll be recorded live right here at the Stanley A. Milner li Library where we're recording today. And it's a beautiful space, isn't it? This is the first time I've been. So if you haven't come, you, you it's sort of a, a double shot because you get to see this really cool building and you get to be around for this historic summit. Yes, the Searching for Izena Summit. And it's going to be held on September 26th. So you better join me, myself and Stacy for a panel discussion about the Searching for Izena project. Yeah, and what we've learned about the history and the state of female leadership at Edmonton City Hall over the last century. And of course, we're going into an election in just a few months mm -hmm. and a record number of women are running. So that is something that we should all be excited yes, about. Yes, yes, it's going to be beautiful. And I remember back when we started, yeah. the volunteers had a really hard time just finding a photo of, of Izena. And information about all of the women that we just detailed today. Yes, yes, yes. So we want to say big, big, big thank you to the dozens of volunteers who've worked tirelessly and diligently to help us build this Izena story. And now we have her full stories and the stories of other women who run and who have lost as well, right? So we want to give that give them a huge thank you for the work they've done for um, these women over the past 100 years. Our work has taken us across Edmonton it's taken us across the province. It's even taken us across seas. Yeah, we've talked to people who had to get up really early in the morning uh, in Delhi and in Kenya. Yes, yes, it's been awesome. <laughs> my my favorite one was the um, the Kenya one where you could hear the, the the background of the night and it was just beautiful. It reminded me of where I'm from too, so it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool hearing that. So, you know, over the past nine, nine, eight episodes, we've gone through, we've experienced laughter, we've had insights, we've had inspiration. It's been, it's been with surprises and even some tears. And anger, anger for me, the enough um, episode. episode, it made me angry about yes. how women are treated. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. And I hope it made you angry too, right? So we want to take this time to give a huge, huge thank you and honor the entire team for doing this important work. And we couldn't have done it without them. It's a lasting legacy of this project. And it, we're hoping it will inspire more women um, from all walks of life to run and win a spot at the Edmonton City Hall. So head over to searchingforizina.com for more information about the upcoming Searching for Izina Summit. It's going to be held on September 26th. It is open to the public. You are more than invited to, to attend. So we hope we see you there. Until then, keep searching for Izina. You've been listening to Searching for Izina, brought to you by YWCA Edmonton, Parody Yeg, and several past and present Edmonton City Councillors. New episodes from our nine-part podcast are released the third Tuesday of every month until October. Please check our show notes, social media, and searchingforizina.com for more information about this project and how you can get involved. Share this with your friends and family and leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Keep searching for Azina.